0: To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha or visit Wisdom.com, where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more.
1: Sawadee kap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume three, chapters 91 through 100, and I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today because what we do is we have a student or me to read each individual chapter, chapter 91 through 100 today, and then I will share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. Typically, when we start this class, we will start with a brief meditation just to kind of prepare the mind for the class ahead. But today we're going to just move right into studying the teachings of the Buddha because we have a fair number of content and chapters to actually study that will need extra time to ensure that we have that time to actually apply to the learning. So if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, as you're learning, you can ask questions by just putting those into the comment section and I'll be able to see that and be able to then answer your question. And of course if you're in Zoom you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So again, I'd like to welcome all of you and invite you to join for the class as we study the words of the Buddha. This first chapter is chapter 91. It actually helps us to understand why it's important to study with the words of the Buddha. Is there someone in Zoom who would like to read this first chapter?
2: I'll be happy to read teacher David.
1: Okay, great, Donny. I'm gonna have you read the first two. Read the first one and then stop. I'll teach a little bit. And then we'll read the second one and stop and teach a little bit and go from there because inside this chapter, there's multiple discourses.
2: Okay. chapter 91, why every practitioner should study the Thadagana's words, words which should be studied, learned, and investigated in the foremost assembly. Here in this kind of assembly, when those discourses are being recited, that are mere poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples. The monks do not want to listen to them, do not lend a ear to them, or apply their minds to understand them. They do not think those teachings should be studied and learned. But when those discourses spoke by the, the, the tathagata are being recited, they are deep, deep in meaning, world-transcending, connected with emptiness the monks want to learn listen to them then and hear to them and apply their minds to listen to understand them they think these teachings should be studied and learned and having learned those teachings they question each other about them and investigate them thoroughly asking how is this what is the meaning of this they disclose to others what is obscure and clarify what is unclear and dispel their confusion about numerous misunderstandings this is called the assembly train in investigation, not in conceited talk.
1: Okay, great. Thanks, Donnie. So I'll have you pick up after I, I share this little piece here. So this particular discourse, the Buddha is describing that during his lifetime there were other teachers who were teaching. Just like today, we have countless people that are teaching in the world and different people have different teachings. And here he's describing that there's people who essentially are teaching certain things that are just kind of beautiful words and phrases, They're composed by poets. Essentially, they're easy on the ears, easy for them to take into the mind. But during his lifetime, those people who are studying with him deeply, they're not interested in learning those teachings because maybe they're easy on the ears, but it doesn't give them the tangible teachings that they need in order to be able to learn, reflect and practice to transform the mind but then he talks about his discourses and the things that he's teaching and the students are studying. And his teachings are deep in meaning. They're not just poetry. They're not just assembled to be easy on the ears. It's real work to be able to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings of the Buddha. And not everybody's willing to do that work. Some people are, you know, just content to listen to these easy words from other teachers. But when you start learning with the words of the Buddha, you see that they're very deep in meaning and they give you the real tangible tools in which to train your mind and get to this enlightened mental state. And what the Buddha is saying is his monks, his students are interested in learning those teachings and applying effort to learning them. And as they do learn them, then what they do is they investigate them thoroughly and they ask, how is this? What is the meaning of this? Because as you're investigating the teachings, you're going to need to ask questions and gain clarity to understand. You're not going to be able to just read a book and get to enlightenment or just attend a class and get to enlightenment you're going to need to ask questions and get clarification and then as you do and you start understanding the wisdom of the universal truths and the natural laws of existence and your mind starts to become more awaken, people are going to potentially be struggling with certain aspects of their life. And the Buddha is saying here that yeah, you know, where you're able to, you know, you can disclose the teachings and help people to understand where they're confused about numerous misunderstandings. That's the number one challenge in the unenlightened mind is that it doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. It doesn't understand things like craving, anger, and ignorance, the ten fetters, the Three Universal Truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Brahma-viharas, meditation training, all of these different things that the Buddha shared and others, you can share that as people are open to that. But you're not interested in forcing it on people. It's only when people have an open mind. And the Buddha says that a group of people or a community that essentially is trained in investigating the teachings and then discussing them and clarifying them, this is an assembly that is trained in investigation, not in conceited or arrogant talk. Because if people are just sitting around talking about things that are just mere poetry and easy on the ears, but it's not giving you the tangible tools of what to do, the Buddha is essentially saying this is a community that is not trained in investigation. They're being trained in conceited talk, like just arrogance and pride and the the fact that their words and their phrases or or poetry and easy on the ears, but that's not going to lead to enlightenment. Instead, you need to roll up the sleeves and get really deep into the teachings to be able to learn them and practice them. Because what a Buddha is doing during their lifetime is they are the ones who've discovered the path to enlightenment. They are the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment. And during their life, they're laying down lights along the path to make it very clear for others of how to get to enlightenment. And the Buddha that we know, this Guatama Buddha, he lived over 2,500 years ago. And during his lifetime and afterwards, the teachings were really shining in the world in a way that people could truly understand what it takes to get to enlightenment. But over time, what's happened is these lights that the Buddha laid down along the sides of the path to illuminate the path to enlightenment, you know, they've been knocked over and the batteries have run out and the candles have been blown out and people have kind of grayed the path to enlightenment. and made it really challenging for people to understand what it takes to get to enlightenment. So as you go back to the original words of the Buddha of what he taught, you're learning from the discoverer, the declare, the originator of the path to enlightenment. Because A Buddha is going to get to enlightenment by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides. So their wisdom of how to get to enlightenment is very deep and profound, even more deep and profound than the average enlightened being. A Buddha is going to have very deep wisdom. And then they're going to dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those teachings with countless other people during their life. And countless people will get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then their teachings will be preserved in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. But because of the oral tradition that the Buddha started, People kind of inadvertently changed some of his teachings along the way over 2,500 years because it's very easy for an oral tradition to be modified and adjusted. But then also there are some people who intentionally changed his teachings, not realizing that they were causing harm by changing his teachings. So by going back to his original teachings and not believing them, you learn, you reflect, and you practice to gradually train the mind and awaken it. Then you can see the real results and. Part Part of that is being willing and interested to apply your mind to investigating his teachings and then question, ask questions about his actual teachings. Okay, so Donnie, if you'd like to go to this next one, I'll accept questions at the very end.
2: Words that should be studied and mastered. Simile of the drum pack. Monks, once in the past, the Dasaraharas the, the has had a kettle drum called the Samana. When the Summoner became cracked, the dasaraharas Raharas inserted another pack. Eventually, the time came when the Summoner's original drumhead had disappeared and only a collection of packs remained. So two monks, the same thing will happen with the monks in the future. When those discourses spoken by the Taka, Taka uh, that are deep, deep in meaning, more transcending, linked with emptiness, are uh, being recited, they will not be eager to listen to them, will lend a year to them, not apply their minds to understand them, and they will not think these teachings should be studied and mastered. But when those discourses are mere poetry composed by poets, beautiful in words and phrases, created by outsiders, spoken by their disciples, are being recited, they will be eager to listen to them, will learn and yield to them, will apply their minds to understand them, and they will think these, those teachings should be studied and mastered. In these ways, Monks, those discourses spoken by the Tathagata that are deep, deep in meaning, word transcending, dealing with emptiness, will disappear. Therefore, monks, you should train yourselves. Thus, when those discourses spoken by the Tathagata, deep, deep in meaning, world transcending, dealing with emptiness, are being recited, we will be eager to listen to them, will lend and hear to them, will apply our minds to understand them, and we will think those teachings should be studied and mastered. Thus, should you train it yourselves.
1: Okay, thank you, Dani. So here, the Buddha is basically predicting what has occurred in that we see what has occurred is that his teachings have disappeared, that over 2,500 years, even though during his lifetime, the teachings were shining in the world and very bright and very vibrant, over 2,500 years, people have modified his teachings as I've shared. They either intentionally did that or just through the oral tradition, things that inadvertently got changed and modified. And people can't see this path to enlightenment as clearly as they once could during the lifetime of a Buddha. His teachings have essentially disappeared. Even though we have temples, we have monks, and we have different things that we know of about Buddhism, there's very few people in the world that are studying with the original words of the Buddha and it's very important that we go back to those original words and see what did he actually teach because he's the discoverer the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment and it's his teachings that will actually lead to your enlightenment and the buddha is giving this analogy of this drum Nowadays we make drums with maybe some kind of skin or some kind of fabric over top of a cylinder but here this is a drum that is essentially made out of wood and as you're beating on it it creates the sound and as it creates cracks and it gets cracked they put a wood peg into it. As there's enough cracks and they put enough pegs into this drum eventually you get to the point where the original drum is gone. It's just a number of pegs and that's what he's saying about his own teachings is that's what is essentially going to occur. And he's predicting this during his lifetime, that his teachings will actually disappear. So he knew that during his lifetime, but he needed to bring the teachings into the world as strong and vibrantly as possible to help as many people as possible during his life and after his death. And then as the teachings slowly degrade, then he talks in other teachings about a new Buddha that would arise and bring his teachings back into the world so that people could deeply understand his teachings and then the entire world would gradually essentially get to enlightenment is what we understand. So here The teachings of the Buddha, applying your mind to them is what is going to help you get to enlightenment, investigating his teachings, rather than just listening to the words of mere poetry. That's not going to give you the tangible skills and ability that you need in order to understand the natural laws of existence, how the unenlightened mind works, and how to train it so that you can get to the enlightened mind. So, Dani, if you'd like to read all of these other ones continuously, you can do that, and then I'll teach them at the end.
2: Words from singleness of mind. Agrivasana, the the Tathagata, teaches the teachings to others only to give them knowledge. When the talk is finished, Agrivasana, then I steady my mind internally, quieten it, bring it to singleness, and concentrate it on that same sign of concentration as before, in which I constantly reside. Words that are just, so not otherwise. From the night he fully awakens monks until the night he attains final nibbana or final enlightenment. In this interval, whatever he speaks, talks off and expounds. All that is just so, not otherwise. Words of immediately effective teachings. Good monks. So now, so you have been guided by me with these teachings, which are visible here and now. Immediately effective, inviting inspection onward leading, to be experienced by the wise for themselves. Words of the teachings and discipline, words to be recited with as one's own island, as one's own refuge. Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's teaching instructions has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda. For what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. Those monks Ananda, either now or after I am gone, who reside with themselves as their own island, with themselves as their own refuge. If no other refuge who reside with the teachings as their island, with the teachings as their refuge. If no other refuge, it is this monks and under who will be for me greatest of those dedicated to the teaching. Words to be undertook as taught not to be abolished. As long as the monks do not give instruction on anything that has not been taught or abolish anything that has already been taught but undertake and practice the training guidelines as they have been taught only
1: growth is to be predicted for them not decline okay thank you Dani. so here we have a series of teachings that the buddha is sharing this first one is all about how he practices singleness of mind. This is part of the path to enlightenment that you learn on the Eightfold Path as part of right concentration. That rather than trying to multitask where your mind is rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing because your mind can't actually do multiple things at a time, you're training to do one thing at a time. Because if your mind is rapidly cycling, you're doing one thing for five seconds, another thing for 10 seconds, rapidly cycling to something else, When you're alone or you're sitting and not working perhaps, you're gonna find that your mind is overactive, it's very anxious, maybe stressed because you're having difficulties to just focus on a single object. You might even find that when you're in conversation that your mind drifts away, that it's very hard for you to have concentration and focus because you're not practicing singleness mind in daily life. So in breathing mindfulness meditation, you're focused on the breath to develop that concentration and singleness of mind. But then in daily life, you're practicing singleness of mind in daily life through doing just one thing at a time. And there's other benefits, of course, to breathing mindfulness meditation. But as it relates to the practice of singleness of mind, when you're focused on the breath, that's what you're developing is the ability for the mind to be peaceful, content and joyful, just focusing on the breath and only the breath. And then in daily life, as you do that, where you're driving or you're walking or you're at work or you're in a conversation and you just have singleness of mind you can bring your full wisdom into the conversation or into whatever task or activity that you're applying your mind to whereas if you didn't have singleness of mind you're going to find that you make quite a bit of mistakes because even though you have a certain activity in front of you your mind is off doing something else So you need to practice this singleness of mind to bring forth your full wisdom of the path to enlightenment and then be able to apply it in all your daily activities here this next thing that the practitioners are talking about because remember these teachings being written down are actually being written down after the life of the buddha he's teaching these teachings but then they're actually written down after his death these are is actually a discourse from one of his students saying that. During the lifetime of the Buddha, from the moment that he awoke to enlightenment until his death, everything that he talked about was related to the path to enlightenment. So a Buddha's not gonna sit around and chit chat about politics or chit chat about sports or things like this, even though you might do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. As long as you're practicing right speech, you'll be fine to do those things. But a Buddha has a real goal in mind. They know that they've discovered the teachings that lead to enlightenment, and their goal is to share their teachings with as many people as possible during their lifetime because that's what ensures the continuation of their teachings. By helping countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime, this ensures that there's many, many beings in the world that understand their teachings so that once they die, the teachings can continue to be shared. So a Buddha is going to not just have rambling chit chat or they're not going to be gossiping or slandering. Even an enlightened being isn't going to be doing these things. But even topics that an average enlightened being might talk about, like maybe sports or politics or things like this, a Buddha isn't going to be talking about those things, and it doesn't mean that it's unwise or that you can't talk about those things, it's just that they have a real goal in mind to be able to share their teachings and help as many people as possible get to enlightenment, and their time is limited, so they need to be able to ensure that they stay focused on what it is that they need in order to share their teachings, and that's making sure that as they're in conversations and students are needing help, that they just stay focused on sharing the teachings that lead to enlightenment. And then as they're sharing those teachings, the teachings that you learn from the Buddha are immediately effective. Meaning, if you studied meditation with me for 15 or 20 minutes and you learned breathing mindfulness meditation and you started practicing it, it's immediately effective to you. Or if you learned the Four Noble Truths and you might have learned a 45 minutes, one hour, I've taught the... Four Noble Truths, immediately it's effective to you. Or if you learn about mindfulness or the brahma Viharas, those four healthy mental states, any of these teachings that you learn from the Buddha, even things like eliminating arrogance and pride, eliminating conceit and residing humbly. If you implement these teachings into your life, all the various teachings that the Buddha teaches they're immediately effective to you and that you'll see the results of these teachings right away. Of course, there's gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress that ultimately leads to the enlightened mental state. But as you're learning each individual facet of the teachings, they're immediately effective to be able to help you improve the condition of the mind. And they invite you to investigate them. The teachings of the Buddha aren't to be believed, but instead you learn, reflect, and practice investigating them so he Here in these classes like this, you're learning and then you ask questions to be able to further understand through your own investigation. And that brings us to this next one where the Buddha is essentially saying you are responsible for your own enlightenment. This is your own independent journey to get to enlightenment. You're not a follower. You're not a devotee or something like this. I think of students who learn with me as practitioners that you are on this independent journey to enlightenment and I'm here providing you guidance. I'm essentially like a tour guide pointing out to you the various things that you're going to need to learn and understand in order to get to enlightenment. But you're the one who's doing the work in order to get to enlightenment. So that's what the Buddha is sharing here is that to reside with yourself is your own island, meaning that you are on this own independent journey. Because during this time that the Buddha was sharing this, today we're going to be studying these teachings that the Buddha is leading up to his death. And here, one of his closest students, Ananda, is actually learning from the Buddha that he's about to die. And the Buddha is explaining to his students about three months prior to his death that he's going to be dying. This is how enlightened he is that he knew the exact time of his death, that it was going to be three months from that particular time. He wasn't sick at that time. He just knew that he was going to die because he was that awake. And one of his students, Ananda, was pleading and begging with him not to die. the buddha saying well of course when i die you may think that the teacher's instruction has ceased and now we have no teacher but the buddha says it shouldn't be seen like this because what he taught and explained as teachings during his lifetime at his passing or at his death is going to be the teachings that guide you that's your actual teacher is his actual words His words that he shared and what he discovered and declared as the path to enlightenment, that's your teacher going forward. So even though he has died, you can use his teachings as the way to get to enlightenment by understanding and practicing with his words. There's many people in the world, about 500 million people that consider themselves Buddhists But very few of them are actually learning with the original words of the Buddha. So by going back to his original words, you're basically learning what he taught and using his original words as your teacher and knowing that you're on this independent journey to get to enlightenment on your own. Only you can actually do the work to get to enlightenment. Nobody can give you enlightenment. And then this last part of this chapter is the Buddha is talking about not changing his teachings. And this is what he taught during his life, but of course not everybody understood this. Not everybody gained access to these teachings because as the teachings were handed down from person to person to person through the oral tradition, not everybody necessarily had access to this. And even once they wrote things down, not everybody had access to this. So they didn't understand to not change his teachings. So people did end up changing his teachings after his lifetime and this is done like i mentioned because of the oral tradition it can gradually be changed inadvertently or it can be directly changed by people who are looking to change the teachings not realizing that by doing so it's harming themselves and harming others because as the mind is gradually awakening and you start seeing more focus and concentration come into the mind and discontentedness is gradually diminishing There's still conceit in the mind, and people can become very conceitful. The ego can arise and think, hmm, I'm smarter and wiser than the Buddha, so let me change what he taught, right? But they don't understand the whole reason why their mind is experiencing that focus and concentration and more clarity and less discontentedness is because they started off with a foundation of studying the teachings of the Buddha. And now when their mind's moving towards more concentration and less discontentedness with that ego still in there, they start trying to change and modify the teachings of the Buddha. And in other discourses, the Buddha describes how this is very harmful to change his teachings and that it causes harm to themselves and to other people. So it's unwise to ever change the words or the teachings of an actual Buddha because they are the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment. So let me see if you guys have any questions on any of these discourses that Dani just read. This is all helping you to see why it's so important to be able to study the original words of the Buddha. You can ask your question through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom electronically and ask any questions that you like. I see, Christine, you've raised your hand. Go ahead.
3: Hello, teacher David. Thank you so much for this class again. Um, I have a question on the topic of chit-chatting and small talk that was mentioned in one of the sections. And I very, very much relate to that because, um, I don't know, my mind gets just so bored and I want to go back to topics that are more important to me, uh, which is usually trying to discover the mind um and i don't know it has always been like that even before i discovered this past um i i I like to have deeper conversations or conversations with some meaning but i never quite understood how to navigate this because we still need to um, make connections with people on some level and it seems the buddha figured out how how to do this because i mean i cannot just um throw all these teachings on people that are are not even interested in these teachings i cannot always have the same same conversations with people just because now i'm interested in this subject um how do you navigate this okay this is a very confused question i guess
1: Sure. So when you meet people, you know, as you're first getting to know them, of course, you're going to need to have basic conversation, which is beneficial. Because remember, those five factors of well-spoken speech is to speak at the right time, what you say is true. It's gentle, it's beneficial, and it's with a mind of loving kindness. So when I first meet a student at the temple, for example, I will typically ask them, are you traveling in Chiang Mai or do you live here? You know, where are you from originally? Because typically people are coming from all over the world. You know, I'll ask them how long they're gonna be in Chiang Mai for. I'll ask them different questions to get to know who they are and these kind of things. You might consider this rambling chit chat, but it's actually not. There's a real purpose behind it. There's a real benefit behind it because you're able to get to know this person. So, there's a certain amount of that that you'll need to do in order to get to know people. But what you're not interested in doing is rambling chit chat would be like, having a craving to talk, and just yada, 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 yada instead of a very purposeful discussion. So when people come to visit me at the temple for the first time, it's a very purposeful discussion. It's not rambling chit-chat. There's benefit in understanding, you know, where are you from? What do you do? Are you working? Are you unemployed? I learn all kinds of things about the students who are coming to learn with me. And then when I learn about what they're doing and what they're into and what their life is all about, I can then target the teachings more directly for those individuals. So if there's 10 or 20 or 30 people in the room learning with me, I might have understanding of 5 or 10 or 20 of those people in the room because they've been coming somewhat frequently and I get to know them over time. And now as I'm teaching something like the Eightfold Path or the Five Precepts, rather than just teaching it generally, I can teach it very specifically based on what I know about these people's lives. So you can do the same thing, but don't feel like you need to only talk about the teachings. That's what a Buddha is doing, right? A Buddha is talking about the teachings, but even a Buddha, he's going to still need to learn about his students. He used to be invited to their home and he would go to their home and he would see how their home is set up. He would probably sit down with them and observe how they're having dinner together, how they're interacting with the parents and the children, and things like this. And he would get to know his students. But then what he's doing is he's observing what's happening in this household in order to then help them with teachings to be able to improve the quality of their life. But don't feel like that's what you need to do because, of course, you're not a Buddha. You're going to need to have discussions about other things perhaps. Or if you find that you're only interested in talking about these teachings and that's all you're ever really interested in doing, then you might decide as you develop more and more wisdom and get closer to enlightenment, you might think about becoming a teacher because in that situation, you're going to only be talking about the teachings mostly because the time that you're spending teaching and consulting with students and personal guidance sessions and things like this, you'll be talking about the teachings quite extensively. But even so, you're going to still need to get to know your students and have very purposeful and beneficial discussion.
3: Thank you very much. Can can I ask a follow-up on this one? Of course. Okay, perfect. Um, So, yeah, I really actually like uh, getting to know people and uh, getting to know more about them. That's not the, the thing that I called chitchat i think your explanation allows it to me to clarify my question a little bit okay. um, but then for example if i give workshops um and then we're having breaks for lunch and dinner with the participants um and then often the topics are about politics or sports or whatever and what usually happens i'm just sitting there and i'm saying nothing <laughs> because i'm just yeah, it's, I mean, there are topics besides this teaching that are interesting to me. But um, yeah, most of the of these things just simply that I'm not interested and I'm. I often feel there's so much depth to them that I, I don't have the full picture to even have a full opinion on it um, or to voice a full opinion on it. And even if I would, uh, it wouldn't change anything. Um, And so I'm often just sitting there and I'm quiet or I'm I'm leaving as soon as I can um, because I'm just getting bored. Uh, But maybe there's a smarter way to navigate these kind of things.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like you have a craving to talk in a conversation because otherwise you wouldn't be having that boredom. Right. That boredom that you're experiencing while other people are talking about politics or sports means that you're having a craving to talk and you're longing to talk. So it's actually good practice for you to just be there and be in silence and be quiet because this is training your mind to not be bored in a conversation, that you can just sit there and you're not required to talk. You don't have to talk. You can just sit and listen. And then if there's something that you can contribute, fine. But if not, that's fine too. Or if somebody asks you a question and you answer their question, But every single conversation or I should say every single grouping that you're in, you're not going to always talk. So don't feel like you have to talk. You can sit quietly. There's nothing wrong with that. But if your mind's getting bored, that means there's some craving there that you're wanting something that you're not getting. And maybe it's the interaction or the ability to speak. And it's actually helpful to be in conversations sometimes where you're actually not conversating. It's maybe other people talking, but you're just sitting quietly. This can be really good training for you.
3: Thank you very much. Yeah, this is helpful. I think it's actually not uh, the craving to talk because I'm really comfortable not saying anything. It's more an inner pressure that I should contribute something, but I just don't really feel like it. And yeah, I have to explore this more. I think that's a very good uh, direction to take. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Remember impermanence, that because of impermanence, every situation you're in, you're not going to have something to contribute. Every grouping of people that you're a part of, you're not going to have something to talk about. There's no harm in just remaining quiet. That's okay. Thank you, sir. Yes, you're welcome. All right. I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook or YouTube. So... Let's move on to the next chapter. Is there someone in Zoom that would like to read this next chapter, chapter 92? Christine, you still have your hand up. Is that for the question, or would you like to go ahead and read?
3: Thinking I could read, uh, so let me read. Great. Um, the Noble Eightfold Path is the wholesome practice instituted. Sorry, I have to just move a tiny bit so that I can see better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ananda, I instituted that wholesome that practice which leads to complete liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to nirvana. And what is that wholesome practice? It is this noble Eightfold Path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Ananda, I say to you, continue this wholesome practice instituted by me and do not be the last man. Ananda, when there are two men living, he under whom there occurs a breach of this wholesome practice, he is the last man amongst them. Therefore, Ananda, I say to you, Continue this wholesome practice instituted by me and do not be the last man. All
1: right, thank you, Christine. So as I've shared with you guys, the Noble Eightfold Path is the core central teaching of the Buddha that everything else plugs into. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. If somebody's interested in getting to enlightenment through the teachings of the Buddha, you would need to learn this path inside and out, backwards and forwards. So if you're just starting out or you're maybe even three, six months a year into your practice, if you don't yet understand the words of the Buddha related to the Eightfold Path and understanding each individual step, it's important that you study that. And in volume one, chapter five, is where I go through in detail the individual steps of the Eightfold Path. And you would need to learn chapter four to go along with that because that helps you establish right view, which is the very first step of the Eightfold Path. Each one of these steps are very detailed in nature, and you would need to understand each individual one and dial in your life practice closer and closer. So here the Buddha is explaining, and he explains it in other places too, how the Eightfold Path is what leads to enlightenment. This is the wholesome practice. This is the life practice, and he's pointing this out to Ananda, one of his closest students, and Ananda, he's saying to him that don't be the last man. What he's essentially saying here is that by him bringing these teachings into the world and sharing them into the world and more and more people getting to enlightenment as more and more beings choose to get to enlightenment they escape the cycle of rebirth and over time there's going to be less and less beings in the world right now we're going through A period of time where the human population is expanding, the animal realm is shrinking. And as these teachings come into the world more and more, there's going to be more and more beings that are getting to enlightenment. And now we're going to see over time, maybe 5,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, we'll see a shrinking of all these realms because more and more people are getting to enlightenment. And the Buddha is sharing with Ananda, you know, don't be the last one to get to enlightenment, essentially, is what he's sharing. And it's this Eightfold Path that's going to help people. Get to enlightenment. And you can see for yourself that your mind's gradually improving because the discontentedness gradually diminishes as you're getting closer and closer to enlightenment. And then when it's been one year, two years, three years, and you haven't seen any discontentedness whatsoever you will know that the mind is enlightened, and you've done all this work in order to get to that enlightened mental state, and then you'll enjoy the rest of your life in this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. There's a certain amount of work and a certain challenge to be able to get to enlightenment, but by the time the mind is enlightened, you'll be practicing these teachings effortlessly. So there's a certain amount of work and effort, and there's a certain amount of determination and diligence that you need to apply, but as you're progressing, you should see the improvements to the condition of the mind, and ultimately, as the mind gets closer and closer to enlightenment, life becomes so easy and effortless. Things are at ease. Your mind is at ease because there's such peacefulness and joy, and you have cultivated the wisdom of which to handle all the various challenges that you experience in life. In the unenlightened state, we experience lots of struggles and difficulties because we lack wisdom of how to handle any one particular situation that we're encountering. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you will have experienced enough situations. You would have reached out and gotten help from your teacher of how to overcome those obstacles. And you would have cultivated the wisdom that you need in order to improve the quality of your mind and the quality of your life. So that by the time you get to enlightenment, your life is at ease. There's no longer any struggles and difficulties. There might be certain challenges that you encounter, but you'll have the wisdom of how to handle that challenge and address it and resolve it effortlessly. And it's the Eightfold Path that is this core central teaching that you would need to learn and practice to be able to actually get to that point. So let me see what questions you guys have on this, if any at all. Again, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. In between each chapter, I'm just looking to see if there's any questions coming in from any of the platforms. And I don't see any in any of the platforms. So we can move on to the next chapter. And we're starting to move into this content, which is the story of the Buddha's last days. As he's leading up to his death, we're going to be getting a a series of teachings here that are leading up to his death. So that's what we're actually studying as part of today's class. Is there someone who would like to read this one, the Buddha's last days?
2: I can read Dr. David.
1: Great, Dani. Thank you.
2: The Buddha's last days. Sariputta, there are certain aesthetics and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this. As long as this good man still young, a black-haired young man endowed with youthfulness in the prime of life, so long is he perfect in his clear wisdom. But when this good man is old, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, and come to the last stage in 80, 90, or 100 years old, then the clarity of his wisdom is lost. But it should not be regarded so. I am now aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, and come to the last stage. My years have turned 80. Now suppose that I have four disciples with a hundred years lifespan, perfect in mindfulness, recalled of the teachings, memory and clarity of wisdom. Just as a skilled archer, trained, practiced and tested, could easily shoot a light arrow across the shadow of a palm tree, suppose that they were even to that extent, perfect in mindfulness, call of the teachings, memory, and clarity of wisdom. Suppose that they continuously ask me about the four foundations of mindfulness and that I answer them when asked and that they remember each answer of mine and never ask a subsidiary question or pause except to eat, drink, consume food, taste, urinate, defecate, and rest in order to remove steepiness and tiredness. Still, the Tathagata's explanation of the teachings his explanation of factors of the teaching and his replies to questions would not yet come to an end. But meanwhile, those four disciples of mine, uh, with their 100 years lifespan, would have died at the end of those 100 years. Sariputta, even if you have to carry me about on a bed, still there will be no change in the clarity of the Tathagata's wisdom. Right, he's speaking. Were it to be said of anyone, a being not subject to ignorance, delusion has appeared in the world for the welfare and peacefulness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and peacefulness of gods and humans, it is of me indeed that rightful speaking this should be said. Then the venerable Ananda approached the perfectly enlightened one, having approached and paid homage much respect. While massaging the perfectly enlightened one's limb, he said to him, It is wonderful, vulnerable Sir. It is amazing, vulnerable Sir. The perfectly enlightened one's complexion is no longer pure and bright. His limbs are all flimsy and wrinkled. His body is stooped. And some alteration is seen in his sense bases, in the eye sense base, the ear sense base, the nose sense base, the tongue sense base, and the body sense base. So it is another. In youth, one is subjected to aging. In health, one is subjected to sickness. While alive, one is subjected to death. The complexion is no longer pure and bright. The limbs are flimsy are wrinkled, the body is stooped, and some alteration is seen in the sense spaces. In the eye sense space, the ear sense space, the nose sense space, the tongue sense space, and the body sense space. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher further said this Yuck on you, beautiful aging, aging which makes beauty fade. So much has the charming puppet in crushed beneath advancing age. One who might live a hundred years also has death as destination. Death spares none along the way, but comes crushing everything. And now again Ananda, the, the targeter has today at Chapala's shrine consciously and debil- deliberately rejected the rest of his allotted term of life. And when he has thus spoken, the vulnerable Ananda addressed the fortunate one and said, "Grant is the privilege, venerable sir, to remain during the yawn, live on through the yon, O fortunate one, for the good and the peacefulness of the great multitudes, many people, out of pity for the world, for the wholesome and gain and the well-being of gods and men. Enough now, Ananda, back not the Tathagada, was the reply, time for making such a request has passed. And again, the second time and the third time, the vulnerable Ananda backed the fortunate one in the same words, and he received from the fortunate one the same reply. In that, when a suggestion so evident and a hint so clear was task given to you by the Tathagada, you will be incapable of comprehending them. If you should have them, so back the Tathagata, the Tathagata might have rejected the appeal even to the second time, but the third time he would have granted it. You, therefore, O oh, Ananda, are the fault. You are the offense. But now, Ananda, have I not formally declared to you that it is in the very nature of things near and dear unto us that we must divide ourselves from them? If then severe ourselves from them, how? Then, Ananda, can this be possible, whereas anything whatever born, brought into being, and organized contains within itself the inherent necessity of the disillusion? How then can this be possible, that such a being should not be dissolved? No such condition can exist. All conditioned things must grow old. Work up your salvation with diligence. The final extension, extinction of the Tathagata will take place before long. At the end of three months from this time, the Tathagata will die. My age is now full right, my life draws to its close. I leave you, I depart, relying on myself alone. Be diligent then, O brethren, holy, full of thought. Be steadfast in dedication, watch over your own hearts. Who becomes tired not, but holds fast to this truth and nature law, shall cross this sea of life, shall make an end of grief.
1: All right. Thank you, Dani. So here we have a discourse from the Buddha where he's building up to his last days and where he's delivering information that he's going to die. And he's talking about his faculties, his eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, these five sense bases. There's a total of six, which the sixth one is the mind. And he's describing here the degrading of his sense basis, that he can't see as well, he can't hear as well, he don't smell things as well, he can't taste things easily, and the bodily contact, he doesn't feel it as he did when he was once in his youth or in his earlier times of life but he's describing the condition of his mind because we typically associate old age with the declining of the mental faculty and this is true for unenlightened beings that if you haven't trained your mind as you get older you start losing your memory and your concentration your ability to do certain things your mind is going to degrade over time but if you've trained your mind through the path to enlightenment and either progressed to a certain point, or actually attained enlightenment, you won't see a regression or a decline of the mind as you age. So even though that's what we typically associate with old age, that's because the vast majority of the people that you know are unenlightened so therefore when you see people get old you see their mental faculty gradually decline but that's not true for an enlightened being so as you're training your mind not only is it helping you now in your current life and then as you get to enlightenment you'll experience many years of peacefulness and joy throughout the rest of your life, but in that older time frame of your life, you won't experience this degrading of the mind that is typically associated with getting old. So this is very important to understand that that's what you can experience as you progress forward in life. Then we ultimately get to this point where The Buddha is informing his students that he's going to be dying, and his close student, Ananda, essentially is begging and pleading with him not to actually die. And this is because Ananda is, of course, attached to the Buddha. Ananda was his cousin or his brother-in-law, there's conflicting accounts of what member of the family he was but nonetheless he was a member of the royal family and very close to the buddha that for 45 years of the buddha teaching he was essentially right by his side for a good majority of that time and learning and practicing the teachings with the buddha but he never got to enlightenment during the lifetime of the buddha but during the lifetime of the buddha the buddha told ananda that he would get to enlightenment and that would be his last life but he didn't say when so by the time the Buddha dies and is getting ready to die here, Ananda is pleading and begging with him not to die. So this is an indication that he was attached to the Buddha because if he wasn't attached to the Buddha, he wouldn't be begging and pleading with him not to die. So based on the teachings, Ananda gets to enlightenment him in about three months after the death of the Buddha. Because when somebody close to us is dying and we experience grief or misery, We tend to associate that with being love but it's not the love that's causing the grief and misery when somebody's dying it's the craving desire attachment it's the mind holding on craving permanence and wanting this being to be permanent and oftentimes when somebody dies you can feel like someone pulled the carpet out from under your feet or chopped you off at the knees but you don't need to experience this if you train your mind to practice non-craving and non-attachment you can let go while you still have a relationship with your parents and your grandparents and your life partner and your children, you can train your mind to not be attached to them, but still have a very loving and close relationship with them. And this is part of the practice to learn how to do that. So then when they actually die, you don't experience that grief and that misery associated with it. because. Once somebody does die, this is like the most significant impermanence that the mind can experience. And if you are attached, you will experience grief. And you're not a bad person. You haven't done anything wrong. It's just helping you see that your mind had an attachment to this person. But oftentimes when there is death, this is when you need to confront your attachment to that person. And now after they've died, maybe three months later, a year later, three years later, after you've confronted this attachment, you ultimately get to a point where you've let go and now you're not grieving anymore. So if you've had people in your past that have died, you've seen this process, that at their funeral or getting notified of their death, you might have grieved, this is because of your attachment, and then you grieve for a period of time, and then eventually you get to the point where you train your mind to let go, and you start appreciating and having gratitude for the time that you spent with them. And this is the Four Noble Truths, that as long as you have craving, desire, attachment, you're gonna experience discontentedness. And when you eliminate the craving, desire attachment, your mind will be peaceful and joyful. But you can actually get to that point during life where you can live with people, you can have relationships with mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, and all these other people in your life, but you're just not attached to them. You have deep love and interest in seeing them be well, but you're just not attached and clinging to them. But should these people die and you do grieve, this is an opportunity for your mind to finally let go of the attachment, which Ananda did about three months after the death of the Buddha. And then we get down here where the Buddha basically is reminding Ananda that, hey, all conditioned things are going to grow old. There's this impermanence that Things are going to arise, they're going to change, and they're going to fade away. And he's encouraging people to work out their own salvation, their own improvement to the condition of their mind, that they need to train their mind in order to get to this enlightened mental state, that they need to watch over their own hearts or their own minds and not become tired and not stray away from this truth in this natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught, that if you dedicate time to learning and practicing these teachings, it will lead to this enlightened mental state. It's just a matter of you learning, reflecting, and practicing and working towards that goal. And that's where the Buddha says, if you stay close to the teachings and learning them, then you'll make an end to this grief. And you can see that that's occurring for yourself as you're gradually are training the mind. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or you can raise your hand and Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I see Dani, you have your hand up. What's your question? Um, Teacher David, uh, I think somewhere down
2: the line where um, Ananda pleads with the Buddha about uh, asking him to continue not to die. Mm -hmm. About first time, second time, third time. And the Buddha says that uh, the time for making such a request uh, has passed. And... Further down, he was saying something about uh, if the, the second two, three paragraphs down, uh, if you should have backed the, uh, the Buddha, maybe the second, third time, he might have granted
1: it. So that means what if he uh, maybe have uh, backed him earlier, maybe the Buddha might have granted the request and continue living. Uh, this is saying that the Tanagata might have rejected the appeal, meaning mm-hmm. That even if he would have begged him to stay alive, he still would have rejected it. <laughs>
2: but it says that the third time he would have granted it.
1: Oh, is that what it says? Where does it say that? But the third time he would have, oh, I see. Yes. So, yeah, that's what it's saying, that he would have granted his request to stay alive longer. Right. So the Buddha is saying that, you know, that time is past. So when enlightened being, by the time your mind gets to enlightenment, you know things about the future that other people don't necessarily know. You're not going to necessarily go around and tell people all these things. You just know that, okay, these certain things are going to happen. So the Buddha knew that he was going to die prior to this. So he's telling people at the three-month mark that he's going to die. So he would have known about this prior to that, prior to the three-month time frame. So I guess the way that I look at this is that the Buddha must have accepted at some point, whether it's four months or six months or a year prior, he accepted that, okay, I'm going to die at this particular time. And he resigned himself that he's going to die. So the Buddha is saying, you know, it's too late for you to beg me to stay alive, essentially, because I've already accepted that I'm going to die. And I know that I'm going to die in three months. So if Ananda, what he's saying is if he would have asked him previously before that time frame, then he could have granted this Interest to have him stay alive longer, but now that he's already accepted the terms of death, then he's going to actually die and he's accepting of that.
2: Thank you, teacher.
1: Yep, you're welcome. Christine, you have a hand up.
3: Yes, thank you. I have a question about this foreseeing the future. Uh, I heard about this already before, but I never quite understood it, to be honest, because I think. The future is not something that's pre-written. So my question is, is it that they just know that certain actions will produce certain results and therefore they can spin this on into the future, what's gonna happen? Or how how can you know what's gonna happen?
1: Yeah, you can know what's gonna happen because of the cause and effect, cause and effect. It's not predetermined what's going to happen, But because of the cause and effect, cause and effect, an enlightened mind can have like omniscience or ability to know the future. If you've ever been thinking about a friend and then like 30 seconds later, they called you on the phone, this is a bit of omniscience where you knew the future before it actually occurred. A Buddha's mind is going to be much more well-developed than that where they can actually know something like this where he knew he was going to die long before his death and the Buddha knew that a new Buddha was going to arise you know, after his death and he knew other certain things prior to them actually occurring. It's not predetermined that these things will occur, but it's just a sequence of cause and effect. And a Buddha can see forward in time and see that point in time and just know what's going to happen at that time. But it's still cause and effect that's leading to that point in time.
3: Thank you, sir.
1: You're welcome. All right. I'm not seeing any other questions. Is there someone who would like to read the next chapter? Chapter 94?
3: I can read since my hand is still up.
1: Perfect, Christine.
3: Recite with the teaching as your refugee. But have I not already declared, Ananda, that we must be parted, separated and severed from all who are dear and agreeable to us? How, Ananda, is it to be obtained here? May what, what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate. That is impossible. Therefore, Ananda, reside with yourselves as your own island, with yourselves as your own refugee, with no other refugee. Reside with the teaching as your island, with the teachings as your refugee, with with no other refugee. And how, Ananda, does a monk reside with himself as his own island, with himself as his own refugee, with no other refugee, with the teaching as his island, with the teaching as his refugee, with no other refugee? Here, ananda, a monk resides reflecting on the body in the body. He resides reflecting on feelings in feelings. He resides reflecting on mind in mind. He recites reflecting on mental object in mental objects, dedicated, clearly cr- comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. Those monks, Ananda, either now or after I am gone, who recite with themselves as their own island, with themselves as their own refugee, with no other refugee, who recite with the teachings as their island. With the teachings as the refugee with no other refugee it is these monks ananda who will be for me greatest of those dedicated to the training
1: okay thank you christine so here this is kind of a continuation of where the buddha is explaining to ananda that it's not possible for something that has been born to not disintegrate that as these conditioned objects arise they're going to change and they're going to fade away, that there's this impermanence. And I'm sure Ananda already understood impermanence to a certain degree, but as this craving to keep the Buddha in existence arose, it seems like he lost his wisdom, not realizing that, hey, the Buddha is impermanent. He's not going to be permanent. So he's reminding Ananda that, that hey, it's not possible for something that has been born to not also disintegrate. This is impermanence. And he's saying that you know reside with yourselves as your own island this is your refuge right this is what we talked about earlier that you are your own independent journey to enlightenment that you're not a follower you're not a disciple you're not a devotee of mine you're a student you're a practitioner you're seeking the truth and i happen to be your tour guide that you're choosing to learn with me as your guide and i'm sharing the teachings with you to guide you along but it's you that's actually doing the work to arise this wisdom that's what the buddha is describing as part of being your own island, in your refuge. And now he's talking about how do you get to this refuge? Well, what a refuge is, is protection. The teachings of the Buddha, as you train in them and you get the mind more and more awake, your mind gets to a point where it's fully protected. That now, if you hear certain things that are agreeable, you might get pleasant feelings. Whereas if you hear things that are disagreeable, you might get painful feelings. Or if you see things or taste things or smell things, your mind's going to get shaken up to a certain degree about certain things that are going on in your life life. But by the time you fully train the mind and you get to enlightenment, your mind is fully protected. You have this refuge where the mind is protected. And the Buddha is saying, well, how do you get to this protected mind? How do you get to this refuge? And then he shares the four foundations of mindfulness. Because whenever he talks about protection or whenever he talks about guarding the mind, he always refers to mindfulness. That mindfulness is the way to protect the mind. Because if you're aware of the mind, and particularly the four foundations of mindfulness, as wholesome qualities or unwholesome qualities arise in the mind, you can either support and encourage those wholesome qualities, not allowing them to fade, or if you see certain unwholesome qualities arise in the mind, you can cut them off and eliminate them from the mind, and this protects the mind. As you get to enlightenment, you won't have unwholesome qualities that arise in the mind your mind will be so well trained it'll only have wholesomeness in the mind but if there's work to do in order to get to that point but in the meantime having this mindfulness is utterly important so that you can observe the wholesome qualities and unwholesome qualities and these four foundations of mindfulness are what's going to help you do that what body and body is is this is understanding the bodily sensations that prior to discontentedness becoming a feeling in the mind there's going to be some bodily sensation associated with this arising discontentedness it might be tightening of the chest it might be tension in the neck or the shoulders you might have heart palpitations you might have queasiness in your stomach you might feel heat or pressure in your skull or your face these are all indications that if you start observing what's going on in your life prior to you getting either pleasant feelings painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant, there's some bodily sensation that's occurring. And if you can build mindfulness and awareness of this, then you can catch this discontentedness before it ever becomes a feeling in the mind. And you can cut it off and let it go, not allowing the mind to form conditioned feelings. Because as long as the mind is forming these conditioned feelings of conditioned, pleasant feelings, conditioned, painful feelings, Or conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, it's gonna keep doing this. So you're trying to get ahead of the curve and not allow the mind to form feelings based on some condition. Because as long as you allow the mind to experience conditioned feelings, you can't get to this permanent mental state of enlightenment. Because if you base your inner feelings on some condition, that condition is impermanent. And once that condition changes, your feelings are gonna change. So if you get happy because you got a new job, or you get happy because you got a raise at work, or if you get happy because of your bank account and your bank balance, or you get happy because you got a new pair of shoes, well, all of those things are gonna change at some point. So if you allow the mind to take on these conditioned, pleasant feelings of happiness based on these conditions or others, when those conditions change, now you're gonna experience painful feelings. Your bank balance goes down, you're gonna be sad, or you lose your job, you're gonna be sad, or your shoes are old and beat up, or somebody steals them, or you lose them or misplace them, you're going to feel sad or angry or frustrated. So by being attentive to those bodily sensations, you can catch it before it becomes a conditioned feeling. You don't allow the mind to continue to do this. You restrain the mind. But then if you miss it, because you will, as you're training on this path to enlightenment, you're not going to be able to learn this and instantly catch every single discontentedness that is arising as a bodily sensation. There are going to be situations as you make your journey to enlightenment where you will be frustrated. You will be angry. You will be annoyed or irritated. And this is because you missed it as a bodily sensation or you were unable to cut it off there because the craving was too strong. So now it becomes a feeling in the mind. So if you can observe that, ah, there's the conditioned happiness or oh, there's the condition sadness or anger, or ah, there's the shyness, or whatever it is, that feeling that's coming into the mind if you can cut it off and let it go there, this is still very helpful to the mind. You're essentially rewiring the mind, not allowing it to get these conditioned feelings. Because if you allow it to come into the mind and continue to reside in the mind, then it's going to start affecting the condition of the mind. This is where you've experienced being angry for multiple hours or days or a week or two. I'm sure you've experienced that or other discontent feelings that have resided in the mind for a continuous long-term period. It's because you didn't catch it as a bodily sensation and cut it off and let it go. You didn't catch it as a feeling and cut it off and let it go there. So now it's affecting the condition of your mind more long term. And you can still cut it off and let it go there. And that would be wise if it's been three hours and you're still angry or it's been a day or two. And you're like, oh, my goodness, what is going on? Why am I still angry? You can redirect the mind and take it in another direction and cut it off. So you're essentially rewiring the mind. Because if you don't do that and you allow the mind to continue to be affected by the condition of the mind and residing with these feelings and affecting the condition of the mind, then you're feeding these mental objects. One of the mental objects is like ill will. So if you don't catch it as a bodily sensation, then it becomes a feeling. Now you're angry and hateful. Now it affects the condition of your mind where you're angry for a couple of hours, a couple of days or a week or two. And now this mental object, which is A more deeply rooted container in the mind, it gets fed more and more and it's like filling up and bolstering and more deeply rooting this ill will in the mind. And what you're trying to do is purify the mind and get rid of these containers of these mental objects like ill will. The 10 fetters are all mental objects that are deeply rooted in the mind and you're working on uprooting those and getting those out of the mind. So if you can put this blockade on the bodily sensations and cut off and let go of anything that's arising as a bodily sensation, and maybe sometimes it becomes a feeling and you need to cut it off there too. But more and more, you get a handle on these bodily sensations and cutting it off and letting it go there. In the meantime, you're applying certain practices to break up these mental objects. With ill will, you're using loving kindness meditation and you're practicing loving kindness in daily life. That's what's going to uproot this mental object of ill will but all the while you're being attentive to the mind and you're guarding the mind and protecting the mind with this mindfulness. That's the refuge that the Buddha is talking about, is protecting the mind by being observant of any arising discontentedness. This is somebody who's diligent and dedicated and determined that you're not complacent. You're not just allowing the feelings to come into the mind and oh all right, I'm gonna be angry or I'm gonna be frustrated or I'm gonna let my mind be angry for multiple hours or days or weeks. A person who's on the path to enlightenment, when you observe that's happening, you need to take action in order to cut that off and let it go. And if you can catch it as a bodily sensation, Wonderful. You've saved yourself a whole lot of difficulties. But if it has become a feeling or it is affecting the condition of your mind, still cut it off and let it go there so you're not feeding this mental object. And more and more as you uproot these mental objects out of the mind, you're purifying the mind and you'll get to a point where discontentedness is no longer arising because you've eliminated these 10 fetters. More and more, you'll see this diminishing of discontentedness until you get to the point where there's no discontentedness arising. As you're first getting going with this, you might see all kinds of discontentedness occurring in the mind because you've got all these different cravings, desires, attachments. But as you clear those out more and more and you have less and less craving, desire, attachments in the mind, you'll get discontent less frequent and it will be less significant when you do get discontent. Early in practice, you've got lots of cravings, and some of them are very strong. So you might have very strong feelings and very strong emotions. But as you're training your mind, those diminish, so you have less cravings, and they're less significant. So therefore, you're not feeling the strong feelings anymore. Your mind becomes more and more peaceful and more and more joyful as you're letting go more and more of the cravings. And this is how you actually protect your mind. Any questions on this one? To reside with the teachings as your refuge? All right, I'm not seeing any questions here in any of the platforms. All right, I'm not seeing any questions. So let's go on to the next chapter. Is there someone who would like to read this one, chapter 95? I can read this. Thank you, Donnie.
2: Four criteria that assure the words of the Buddha. Suppose a monk were to say, friends, I heard and received this from the perfectly enlightened one's own lips. These are the teachings, this is the discipline, this is the master's teaching. Then monks, you should neither approve nor disapprove his words. Then, without approving or disapproving, his words and expressions should be carefully noted and compared with the suttas or discourses and reviewed in the light of the discipline. If they, on such comparison and review, are found not conform, the suttas or the discourses or the discipline the conclusion must be assured assuredly this is not the word of the buddha it has been wrongly understood by this monk and the matter is to be rejected but where on such comparison and review they are found to conform to the suitors or the discipline the conclusion must be assuredly this is the word of the buddha it has been rightfully understood by this monk suppose a monk were to say in such and such a place there is a community of elders and distinguished teachers I have heard and received this from the community, then monks should neither approve nor disapprove these words. Suppose a monk were to say, in such and such a place there are many the elders who are learned various of the tradition, know the teachings, the discipline, the training, guidance. So most of monk were to say, in such and such a place there is one elder who is learned, I have heard and received this from the elder, Aware on such comparison and review they have found to conform to the suttas, discourse and the discipline, and then the conclusion must be, assuredly this is the word of the Buddha, it has been rightfully understood by this
1: okay thank you danny so essentially what the buddha is getting to is what i share is don't believe anything right don't believe the teachings don't believe me when i'm talking to you don't believe the books and he talks in other teachings where he talks about don't believe texts, and he says you know don't believe any of this stuff that instead you consult his own words because over the course of time Like he was aware that there's this universal truth of impermanence and people were gonna be changing his teachings, he knew that. So he encouraged people to look and compare what this person says to the original words that he shared. And if they're different, then you should reject that, right? But if they match to what he said, he says, okay, this is the teachings of the Buddha. And now, even with that, he teaches in other teachings to not believe that, to investigate his teachings and examine them. So you learn, reflect, and practice. This is what cultivates your wisdom, and this is what's gonna lead to enlightenment. By going back to the original words, not believing them, learn, reflect, and practice. Any questions on this one? All right, I'm not seeing any questions here. I'm not sure if Facebook is still live streaming for those of you guys that might be hearing this. I guess if you're hearing this on Facebook, it might be working, but it looks like it's all locked up on my side. I'm not sure that it's still working. All right, so we have chapter 96. Is there someone who would like to read this one? Okay, I can go ahead and read this one for you guys. So, chapter 96, it's titled The Supreme Honor and Respect. Ananda. Prepare me a bed between these twin sala trees, with my head to the north. I am sleepy and would like to lie down. Ananda, these sal trees have burst forth into an abundance of untimely blossoms, which fell upon the Tathagata's body, sprinkling it and covering it in homage or respect. Divine coral tree flowers fell from the sky, divine sandalwood powder fell from the sky, sprinkling and covering the Tathagata's body in homage or respect. Divine music and song sound from the sky in homage respect to the Tathagata. Never before has the Tathagata been so honored, respected, appreciated, admired, and adored. And yet, Ananda, whatever male or female ordained practitioner, male or female household practitioner resides practicing the teachings properly and perfectly fulfills the way of the teachings he or she honors the tathagata has deep respect and appreciates him and pays the supreme homage or respect therefore ananda we will reside practicing the teachings properly and perfectly fulfill the way of the teachings this must be your goal and objective so here what's being described by ananda because ananda is the one who's really credited with preserving the teachings in such clarity because even though he hadn't gotten to enlightenment throughout the life of the Buddha, he surely made progress. And part of that progress is you have this concentration and focus and clarity of mind and deep memory that by the time the Buddha dies and they start writing the teachings down three months afterwards, it's Ananda who is recounting a lot of the teachings. Even though there's 500 people in attendance at this first Buddhist council to write down the teachings of the Buddha, Ananda is accredited with having preserved the teachings in his mind the most accurately. So a lot of the discourses and teachings that you see, Ananda is represented in them because he's the one who's recounting them. And he is recounting this miracle that has occurred. The Buddha didn't perform this miracle. This is performed by heavenly beings or by God that performed this miracle where these flowers blossom in an untimely period of time. There's this sprinkling of flowers from the sky. There's the sandalwood powder. There's this music from the sky. This is a great honor and respect, to the Buddha. But the Buddha uses this as an opportunity to direct the mind of his students towards what is the real way to respect and honor him, which is to learn and practice his teachings. You know, you would think that this great miracle performed, and then somebody might be, yeah, look at me. I'm so great. You know, I've got this miracle that's being performed around me. But that would be somebody with conceit. Right. And somebody who is getting to enlightenment and has achieved enlightenment and particularly a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, they're not going to have ego. They're not going to have conceit. They're not going to be prideful when this amazing miracle occurs. Instead, he uses it as a way to help his students realize that the real true way to honor and respect him is to learn and practice his teachings, because that's what ensures the teachings continue in the world. And he's sharing that with Ananda here. And I imagine there was probably other people around too. It wasn't just Ananda, but he's talking to Ananda in this situation. Any questions on this one? All right, I'm not seeing any hands or any questions. This is chapter 97. Is there someone who would like to read this one? I uh, read really? <laughs> Thank you, Dani.
2: Teachings and discipline will be your teacher. Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased now we have no teacher, it should not be seen like this another. But what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. Now, monks, I declare to you, all condition things are of a nature to decay, strive on entirely. These were the Thetakatha's last words.
1: OK, thank you, Dani. So here, this is a shorter version of something we have already studied previously in this class where the Buddha is just pointing to his teachings and saying essentially that you don't need this body to be here with you in order to learn and practice these teachings. This being the Buddha, he awoke at the age of 35. He dies at the age of 80. So he shares his teachings for 45 years. Once he dies, his teachings are there for everybody to be able to get to enlightenment. They don't need him any longer because there's all these enlightened beings around that should be able to help people get to enlightenment. So he uses his very last words to be a teaching that is the very first teaching on the path to enlightenment. He must have been wise enough to know and know many things, but he must have been wise enough to know that his last words were going to be captured and that people would know what he taught as his last words. His last words, were the very first teaching that you would need in order to get to enlightenment, which is an understanding of the universal truth of impermanence. Without understanding the universal truth of impermanence, you would never have any opportunity to get to enlightenment ever, because that's a very fundamental and basic teaching that you would need to know and understand. So here, he's making sure that he uses his, even his last breath, to make sure that he delivers a teaching that can be helpful. He's not moaning, he's not sorrowful that he's gonna die. He already knew he's gonna die. He's impermanent, he knows that. His mind isn't afraid of death. He's not grieving that he's gonna die. He knows the exact moment that he's going to die. So he delivers this last teaching and then he lays down and he dies. And his last words were, "'Now, monks, I declare to you, "'all conditioned things are of a nature To decay, strive on untiringly. So, what he's basically saying is anything that arises is going to change and fade away. His body, himself, as a Buddha, is subject to the universal truth of impermanence that because he was born, there needs to be this death. But strive on untiringly. Keep working. Keep being diligent. Don't be complacent so that you can get to this enlightened mental state. Because once a Buddha dies, they're never going to be reborn again. The same as an enlightened being is once you get to enlightenment, you're never going to be coming back into the world to experience the grief and misery and despair and displeasure that you've experienced at different times in your life surely there's many wonderful things about life that we all enjoy and we should enjoy those things and as you get to enlightenment you're actually going to enjoy life a whole lot more than you ever did in the unenlightened state because you're never going to be experiencing those discontent feelings but in the meantime, if you can use that grief and misery and displeasure and despair as motivation to strive on untiringly, this can help you get to that more peaceful and joyful mental state so that you will live the rest of this life with the peace and joy, and then you won't come back to experience life over and over and over again, as we've been doing in the past. Any questions on this chapter? Okay, it looks like Facebook is back for me. Okay, yes, I see Jacqueline, you're saying it's been working. Okay, you know, my side, it was locked up, but obviously it's still working, so that's great. All right, let's see. Okay, Donnie was saying Facebook is working as well. Excellent. All right, so let's go to the next chapter because I'm not seeing any questions here. And notice here as I'm scrolling through that there's a lot of content here for you guys to learn, right? There's this basically two paragraphs or you know maybe three or four sentences here in the words of the Buddha. But I'm using this as an opportunity to teach you many different things. So using my words here, I'm teaching you about final enlightenment or final nibbana. I'm sharing with you, you know, what happens at death. After we die, does the body become soil to the earth? What happens to the mind upon death? If someone attains enlightenment, what happens to the mind? Does it disappear? Is the mind or the soul and spirit the same thing? So you can be learning lots of different things, and it's important that you read these chapters ahead of time or after class because I don't have time in this class to cover every single thing that I put in the book. So be sure that you're reading these chapters, not only the words of the Buddha, but what I'm sharing with you as well to help you further understand what the Buddha is teaching. And then we've got chapter 98 here. Is there someone who would like to read that? I can read it. Thank you, Donnie.
2: Four places which should arouse confidence in the dedicated. Vulnerable Sir, formerly monks who had have, who have spent reigns in various places used to come to see the, the Tathagata, and we used to welcome them so that such trained, well-trained monks might see you and pay their respects. But with the perfectly enlightened ones passing, we shall no longer have a chance to do this. Ananda, there are four places the site of which should arouse confidence in the dedicated, which are they? Here the Tathagata was born is the first. Here the Tathagata attained supreme enlightenment is the second. Here the Tathagata set in motion the views of the teaching or Dharma view is the third. Here the Tathagata attained final enlightenment, final nibbana. therefore physical body for an enlightened being without reminder is the fourth. And an dedicated male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, will visit those places. And any who dies while making the pilgrimage to these shrines with a devout committed heart will, and the breaking up of the body after death, will be born in an heavenly world.
1: Okay, thank you Dani. So here the Ananda was talking to the Buddha leading up to his death And he was asking him, he's like, you know, all these people are coming to see you from all over the place. Now that you die and you're no longer here and they can't pay their respect to you, you know, how should we take care of these people who are coming to see you, that you've been impactful in their life and you've helped these people throughout your life. When they come to see you, you're no longer going to be here. What should we do? And the Buddha is saying, okay, there's these four places that you can visit that will arise, this dedication in your mind and he gives these four places where he was born where he attained enlightenment where he delivered his very first teaching and where he actually died these are the four places that he says that you could visit to arise dedication and those places are actually marked in nepal and india he was born in nepal he attained enlightenment in india which we call india of course back then it wasn't nepal and india he delivered his first discourse in what we call India, and he died in where we call India. So these four sites are places you can go visit today. And at the end of this year in December, I'm planning to take a trip to guide students to see these four sites. And we're going to be doing it as a retreat. It's a 12-day travel where we're going to be traveling from new delhi india throughout all the different sites including in nepal and as we go to each site and we're going to be going to other sites as well related to the life story of the buddha that i'm going to be teaching you guys along the way and helping you guys to learn the teachings as we travel throughout these different places so you can see this on the website under classes courses and retreats you can see the program that i have set out for the end of the year to be able to travel on this trip, if you would like to go and see these four sites, and it can help you arise dedication towards getting to enlightenment. Are there any questions on this chapter? I see, Donna, you've got a hand up.
2: Uh, yes, teacher. Um, the last paragraph says, anyone who dies while making a pilgrimage to these shrines with a devout heart will be reborn in the heavenly world. It sounds like a shortcut to be reborn in the heavenly world
1: to me. (laughs) Yeah, just remember that getting into the heavenly realm isn't desirable. That's not the ultimate goal. Because in the heavenly realm, you still need to get to enlightenment. And those beings oftentimes are very complacent and they're reborn into other realms. So the goal would be to get to enlightenment in this life and not be reborn into a heavenly existence. But the Buddha is sharing that that's the case But your goal, I would encourage you to get to enlightenment during this life and no longer experience rebirth in the heavenly realm. By the way, I don't have any way to independently verify this aspect of his teaching. But, you know, obviously he shared these teachings and his teachings all lead exactly where he said they do to this enlightened mental state. And a Buddha is not going to lie. So if he's sharing this teaching, then it must be the truth. But I just don't have a way of verifying it. And I'm not interested in verifying that. I'm interested in ending everything and getting to enlightenment so that in this life, there's no longer any more rebirth in a future life. So I would encourage everybody to have that goal where your goal is to attain enlightenment in this life so that you no longer will ever experience any rebirth at all. Understand. Thank you, teacher. Yep. Christine, you have a question?
3: Yes, sir. Um, I have a question on these um, special places, because in my own experience, I found that whenever I go to a temple and I hear the chanting or it's not only Buddhist uh, temples, or if I go to a graveyard here in Germany, uh, or if I go to the church, these kind of places I go there and I cannot understand it and I cannot explain it, but maybe um, the teachings can. Whenever I go there, I get so deeply moved that I almost have to fight not to to have tears coming uh, out of my eyes, uh, and I don't understand why. It's just happening, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's. I understand that this cannot change anything for me to go there, but it, it doesn't make me enlightened to go to a graveyard. But something is happening there, and I don't know what. And it's not the, It's not sadness. Mm-hmm. Just to be added.
1: Yeah, there's some craving, desire, attachment there if there's something going on in the mind with discontentedness. But keep in mind that the body can cry without the mind being discontent. So you can observe this that the bodily actions and the mind are two different things. We typically associate crying with sadness or maybe happiness or joy too, right? That the body can cry in that situation. But I've also observed how this body of mine has cried in situations where the mind is completely peaceful and there's nothing in the mind whatsoever and it's just completely peaceful. So this is where you can see the separation between the body and the mind, that these are two separate things. That crying is not an emotion. Crying is a bodily action typically associated with emotion, but not always because of impermanence, right? It's not always due to emotion. Otherwise, that would be permanence. So you can observe your mind when you go into those situations and see if there's any discontentedness in the mind. It sounds like you have and there isn't any discontentedness. And you can just see that this is the body perhaps just having that action of crying. Whenever there's something like this that is occurring, and you've heard this from me now at least twice in the last week or two, Is that whenever something like this is occurring it's helpful to put the mind in that same situation again and do that repeatedly until you see some change with the condition of the mind or in this case the body because you've talked to me about some things and you asked questions in class about playing games with your parents and things like this. And you observed certain things that were happening where the mind was becoming agitated, perhaps. And what the unenlightened mind has a tendency to do is push these things away because of aversion. And it thinks that that solves the problem. But the true way to solve it is to put the mind back into that situation and train it to be peaceful and joyful in that situation. So if you're noticing that going to funerals or graveyards or places like this arise something in the mind or even this crying, then it's best to put the mind back in those situations, visit those places periodically until you get to a point where you observe that the mind can just reside peaceful and content regardless of where you're visiting and what you're doing. And that's how you get to true liberation.
3: Thank you very much, teacher. Yeah, it's But it's indeed, as you say, my mind is completely calm and um, content. It's the body that's crying more than anything, Mm -hmm. but i will really again. But I definitely don't avoid these situations. They're not unpleasant. Um, And yeah, also we already played again. So thank you for this reminder.
1: Good. Yeah. So this is where you can start seeing the truth for yourself that I share with students that the body and the mind are two separate things. In that the mind can actually experience peace and joy, but the body is actually crying. It's really interesting to see this occur because we typically associate crying with sadness. But if you've had this experience and you've observed the mind and you know that that's not actually true, that it's not permanently true, that when you cry, you're sad. And even though this is how most people associate it. So this is how you on this independent journey, you can discover the truth for yourself. So that's great that you're seeing that and that you're continuing to put the mind in that situation and all these different situations and training the mind to be unagitated and unaffected by any particular occurrences or any kind of cravings, desires, attachments that may or may not exist in the mind. All right. I'm not seeing any more questions, so I'm going to move on to the next chapter, which is 99. Is there someone who would like to read this chapter?
3: Well, I guess I can read.
1: Great, thank you, Christine.
3: Three places that should be remembered. Monks, there are three places. There are these three places that a uh, head anointed Kateya uh, king should remember all his life. What three? The first is the place where he was born, the second is the place where he was headed, head anointed, anointed. Um, Kataya King, sorry for the stumbling, and the third is the place where, having triumphed in battle, he emerged victorious and settled at the head of the battlefield. These are the three places that a head anointed Kataya King should remember all his life.
1: Okay, thank you so the buddha used to teach people in all levels of society a buddha doesn't look at society as having levels although the way that we typically look at society is, you know, there's different levels of society, but a Buddha is going to treat all beings equally. So the Buddha taught people who were commoners and who were working in the fields and who were having everyday challenges of common people, but he also taught nobility and kings and people like this as well. And these katya, this group of people called Kattiyas during his lifetime. He talked about them frequently in his teachings because essentially they were a well-developed community of people who were enjoying a lot of prosperity and they were well practicing the teachings even before the Buddha started sharing his teachings, they were practicing certain aspects of his teachings, and they were very prosperous and they got along very well within their community. So he would sometimes hold the katiya's up as kind of an ideal society of people who were functioning in a way that would be very helpful for people to emulate the way that they practice in terms of the way they treat their elders and the way that they conduct themselves. So here he's teaching a katiya king. And he's suggesting to him that he remembers these three things, that he remembers where he's born, where he was anointed as a king, and where he triumphed in battle. And where you can apply this to your life, and I explain this in the book, is that, of course, it's really helpful to remember where you're born. Because wherever you were born and you grew up, those people contributed to your upbringing whether it was teachers or relatives or neighbors, these people contributed to helping you become a better and better person in life. So it's wise to remember where you were born because should you ever get to enlightenment someday, perhaps you might be interested in returning to that place and helping people if they are interested in learning a bit about the teachings, you would be able to help them and share with them. So it's wise to understand where you were born and be grateful and appreciative of the people who contributed to your life. And then likewise, here, in terms of knowing, you know, for a king where they're anointed as a king and where they triumphed in battle, what you can keep in mind is keep in mind certain successes that you've had in life, whether it's in a personal situation or a professional situation. Remember those successes and remember the people who've contributed to those successes, because In order to be successful in life, either in your personal life or professional life, you need other people involved. You can't just live in a cave and be alone by yourself and live a very successful life. You would need to have other people involved in your life in terms of food and clothing and interacting with, even if you're a business person, you're going to have certain customers, you're going to have partners, you're going to have co-workers and things like this who are contributing to your success. And if you're interested in continuing your success, it's wise to have appreciation and gratitude for the people who are contributing to your success. And that's how you can apply this to your life. Because then by having appreciation and gratitude for these people that are contributing to your success and maybe sharing with them and having generosity as you practice with them then this is going to help contribute to your future success and this will help you to continue to grow in the world whereas if you didn't have appreciation and gratitude for the people that are helping you in life those people aren't going to continue to be interested to help you because you don't have appreciation and gratitude. Therefore, you're not going to be able to experience as much success in your life. So where people are helping you, be sure to share your appreciation and gratitude through your words and your actions. And part of that can be potentially practicing generosity as you're helping them understand that you're appreciative and having gratitude for their help. Any questions on this chapter? All right, so let's move to the very last one, which is chapter 100. Is there someone who would like to read this? I can read this. All right, sounds good, Danny.
2: Birth is the origin of this contentness, the union of three things. Monks, the conception of an embryo in a womb takes place through the union of three things. Here, there is the union of the father and mother, but it's not the mother's season, and the consciousness mind to be reborn is not present. In this case, there is no conception of an embryo in a womb. Here, there is the union of the father and mother, and it is the mother's season, but the consciousness mind to be reborn is not present. In this case too, there is no conception of the embryo in a womb. But when there is the union of the mother and father, it is the mother's season, and the consciousness mind to be reborn is present. Through the union of these three things, the conception of the embryo in the womb takes place. A mother then carries the embryo in her womb for 9 or 10 months, much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then at the end of 9 or 10 months, the mother gives birth with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then when when the child is born, she nourishes it with her own blood. But the mother's breast milk is called blood in the noble one's discipline when he grows up and his sense base mature. The, pl- the child plays at such choice as toy plows, tipcats, sort, toy wheelbills, toy measures, toy carts, and a toy bow and arrow. When he grows up and his sense base is mature, still further, the youth enjoys himself, provided and endowed with the five chords of sensual pleasure, reforms recognizable by the eye, sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognisable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable and likeable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of craving. On seeing a form with the eye, he craves after it. If it is pleasing, he dislikes it if it is unpleasing. He resides with the mindfulness of the body unestablished, with a limited mind, and he does not understand as as it actually is the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom wherein those evil, unwholesome states cease without reminder. Engage as he is in favour, favoring and opposing whatever feeling he feels. Whatever pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor unpleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. And he does so, excitement arises in him. Now, excitement in feelings is clinging. With with his clinging as condition, existence comes to be as existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging as death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mess of discontentedness. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a physical object with the body, on recognizing a mental object of the mind he craves after it if it is pleasing he dislikes it if it is unpleasing he resides with mindfulness of the body unestablished with a limited mind and he does not understand as it actually is the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom wherein those evil unwholesome states are eliminated without reminder engage as he is in flavoring and opposing Whatever feeling he feels, whatever pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. And he does so, excitement arises in him. Now excitement in feeling is clinging. If he's clinging as condition, existence comes to be. If existence as condition birth, if birth as condition aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mess of discontentedness.
1: All right, thank you, Donnie. So what the Buddha is describing here is how a being comes into the world and ultimately ends up in the unenlightened state with craving and clinging that leads to discontentedness. This first part, he's essentially describing conception and how that there needs to be three things that comes together in order to create a living being. And for us, we might say there needs to be an egg, a sperm, and then a consciousness. These are the three things that come together. Here, the Buddha is talking about the union of the mother and father, that the mother needs to be in season and there needs to be a consciousness. So the union of the mother and father is the sexual intercourse that produces the sperm. The mother being in season is that the egg is coming out of the ovaries down into the womb. And then the third thing is the consciousness needs to come into existence. So this is how a being comes into existence. And we understand a lot more technical detail of this than they did 2,500 years ago. But the Buddha understood it to this degree, and he's describing it to this degree for the average person to understand. So essentially what he's describing is that a living being is formed at the time of conception. But there are some situations where an egg and a sperm come together, but a consciousness doesn't come to be. Because of impermanence, not every single egg and sperm results in a consciousness and we see this when mothers have a baby that doesn't have a heartbeat or a consciousness or the baby isn't viable and we will typically terminate that pregnancy because it's dangerous for the mother's health to continue to carry that in her womb so here the buddha is describing that a being is coming into existence as a human being that then there's birth and there's nourishment from the mother's milk which the buddha is calling blood Then this child is maturing outside the womb, playing all these different toys. Then he's talking about how craving arises based on these five chords of central pleasure that at some point as we've been born and we start growing up, we experience certain pleasant feelings based on our cravings. And now we cling to those pleasant feelings, wanting them to be permanent. And because of our mind is untrained and we don't have mindfulness established, our mind is going to continue to experience this discontentedness over and over and over again. Because now we start forming this favoring and opposing. Because when there's craving in the mind, there are certain things that are agreeable to you, and there are certain things that are disagreeable to you. And because of those cravings, it's motivating this favoring and opposing. And this is all due to the craving, desire, attachment. And when you get what you want, you get pleasant feelings. When you don't get what you want, you get painful feelings. So when you get rid of craving, desire, attachment, there might be certain things that you prefer, but you can be peaceful and joyful and content no matter what. So right now, there might be certain foods that you really, really like, and there's other foods that you maybe dislike and you wouldn't eat those things. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you need to train the mind to not have this favoring and opposing or this craving, this desire, where you have agreeable and disagreeable contact, where you can be peaceful and joyful regardless of those kinds of things. And he's essentially walking you through dependent origination, which is what we're going to be studying in volume five, chapter 14. In chapter 14 of volume five, he goes step by step and sharing with you dependent origination. Here, he's doing that in a bit more of a story format to be able to help you gradually see how a being comes to be and experiences these discontent feelings that we get in the mind through the various factors of dependent origination. And ultimately, he gets down to explaining how discontentedness comes to be. You'll see this laid out in Dependent Origination in Volume 5, Chapter 14. You're welcome to go there even now and start looking at that because it takes you time to be able to learn and digest that. And then I'll share in there the words that I share as a story format to help you gradually understand Dependent Origination because this is the highest, most ultimate truth of the Buddhist teachings. The Four Noble Truths is giving you a window into Dependent Origination the Eightfold Path is helping you understand how to develop your practice and how that's going to lead to the ending of discontentedness, but it's the dependent origination that's explaining to you how this all comes to be. It's the highest, most ultimate truth, and it helps you understand the ignorance or unknowing of true reality as being the real primary problem in the unenlightened mind and why cultivating wisdom is what's ultimately going to transform the mind and get to the point where the mind is enlightened. So, so this is what he's doing in this particular chapter is helping you to see that in a more story format and through training your mind you can transform the mind and eradicate all the craving and clinging thus eliminate discontentedness ending this cycle of rebirth any questions on this particular chapter this is the last one chapter 100 all right I'm not seeing any questions here on any of our platforms So, I'll just end today's class by thanking all of you for joining, and at the same time invite you to join for our future classes. Next Saturday, we're going to be in chapters 101 to 110. So you can read those before, in, or after class, and you'll get much more out of the learning experience. Of course, you're always welcome to just come to class and learn here, but just understand that the books have a lot deeper level of detail that are going to be much more helpful and impactful to you than just purely what we're learning here in the class. This is more of a study group to help you come and learn things and get clarification to things that you're maybe already studying on your own. Tomorrow in the group learning program, it's chapter 13 of volume one and in this chapter i'm going to be sharing with you a special ability a special skill to help you eliminate craving desire attachment what you typically learn as you're progressing on this path is that breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity are these generalized teachings and generalized practice that you're doing to train the mind to eliminate craving desire attachment you would need those two things breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity to be underway in order to train the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. But what I'm going to be teaching you tomorrow on Sunday is like going in with a surgical knife and surgically removing certain cravings, desires, attachments. And you would need to learn that ability to identify your cravings through analyzing the mind and then putting a plan in place to surgically remove some of these cravings, desires, attachments. You wouldn't be able to eliminate them with just breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity, even though those things need to be well established and on board in order for you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, what I'm going to be teaching you tomorrow is this ability to surgically go in and remove specific attachments. So I'm going to help you learn how to identify your attachments and then how to surgically go in and actually remove them. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together. This is our time to come together to encourage, support, and motivate each other and get answers to any and all questions that you have related to the path to enlightenment. So you're welcome to join any of these classes and or listen to the replays. It's totally up to you. But as you gradually learn these teachings, you'll gradually build up your practice to get closer and closer to the enlightened mental state. So thank you all for those of you guys that chose to read the chapters i appreciate your help those of you guys that are asking questions and being diligent in your learning wonderful this is great for you as any of you guys need any help you know that you can post into the facebook group you can ask questions in these online classes you can send a private message or you can schedule personal guidance and i'm pleased to help you that way as well so have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day we'll see you guys in a future class take care sawadikha